You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I'd like to begin today by talking about another rich, powerful nobleman. We won't be spending too much time talking about him today, but he is a figure that will come to play a pretty big role in our story, so he's worth introducing. His name was Edward Russell, and we've mentioned him before, but his personal story just isn't all that captivating. You know, he was born into the powerful Russell family. His father was the Earl of Bedford, a powerful leader among the Parliamentarians during the Civil War. Edward attended St. John's College, where he got pretty middling marks. Upon the restoration of the Stuarts, he joined the Navy, and in 1672 he was promoted to captain and given command of HMS Reserve. Russell and the Reserve joined John Narborough's fleet down in the Mediterranean and joined the war against the Barbary pirates. It's possible, although by no means confirmed here, that Henry Every served under Edward Russell. Come 1688, Edward Russell was one of the Immortal Seven who composed the famous Invitation to William, the document that instigated the Glorious Revolution. Once the revolution was over and King William sat the throne alongside Queen Mary, Edward Russell won a seat in Parliament, and then he joined the board of the Admiralty. In 1690, after the disastrous Battle of Beachy Head, which Edward Russell took no part in, there was a bit of a shake-up at the Admiralty board, and Russell was made the Commander-in-Chief of the Navy. 
A couple of years later, he would invest heavily in a new joint stock company called Spanish Expedition Shipping. As we well know, that venture fell apart and turned into a substantial financial loss for Edward Russell. However, in 1694, he was granted an earldom. He was made the Earl of Orford. That same year, just a couple of months later, he was made the First Lord of the Admiralty, a position that he would hold off and on for the next 25 years. He's going to be the guy in charge, for example, when pirates take over Nassau. That's why he's going to play a major part in our story. But far before that, in 1695, Orford invested heavily in another ill-fated venture, he was one of the four men who paid out the nose to support William Kidd in his pirate hunting expedition. That did not turn out to be such a financial loss, considering he was recompensated a few years later. But in 1699, the Earl of Orford invested in a third, ultimately doomed, expedition. This is episode 310, Roebuck. William Dampier was introduced to the Earl of Orford, the First Lord of the Admiralty, back in 1697. The two men discussed a variety of topics, but the one that really gripped Orford was their rapidly shrinking world. More and more, it seems with every passing year, the map of the world was being filled in. The extent of the inland Americas had still not been fully explored by Europeans, but their borders were almost fully mapped out by that point. Africa and Asia were the same thing. Their borders were well understood, even if everything happening inland was not yet grasped. There was only one landmass left on Earth that was yet to be truly understood, in their view at least. It was called Terra Australis Incognita. That's what the Romans called it anyway. The unknown southern land. In Dampier's estimation, though, it would better be named Terra Australis Nondum Cognita, the southern land not yet known. There was a great deal of uncertainty about this landmass. Some believed it to be a frozen wasteland, while others thought it was an arid desert. Of course, today, we know that those two camps were mostly talking about two different continents, Antarctica and Australia. But at the time, it was just pure uncertainty. Nobody really knew what it was. Now, Dampier knew well that it could get quite cold down in the southern part of the world, but he believed that Terra Australis Incognita was an arid desert because, well, he'd been there. On his voyage round the world, he'd stopped off at Australia and had seen what he dubbed the miserablest people on earth. Beasts that, in his view, might not even actually be human. It was that stop on Dampier's voyage that really fascinated Orford. It's why he secured a captaincy in the Royal Navy for William Dampier. He wanted to oversee a naval mission that would explore this last unknown continent. Orford set about looking for a ship that would suit the needs of a scientific expedition to the south, and the first ship he found was almost perfect. Well, you know, for us, anyway. 
The ship was named the Jolly Prize, and I really can't think of a better name for a ship than that. But while I would love it, it was not a ship that Dampier found suitable for the voyage he had planned. He wrote the Admiralty in an upset tone that the Jolly Prize was far too small to carry the crew that would be needed for a voyage of that length. It would be especially dangerous, he said, quote, considering the temptations our seamen have had of late to turn pirate. End quote. He said that his ship needed plenty of hold space to carry food and beer and rum, enough to ensure that the men would not starve and enough to ensure that they would stay relatively contented. He also needed the room to carry trinkets, which he would trade with the locals. He calls them toys. But he also wanted enough room on board for his crew to sleep in relative comfort. He thought that the sleeping quarters, typical on a naval vessel, were insufficient for men on a voyage like that. You know, Dampier had earned his bones on board pirate ships, and the men on those ships prioritized their basic needs far more than the Admiralty thought was required. If Dampier was going to sail into the great unknown, he was trying to do everything in his power to make sure that the men on board were happy and content. Otherwise, well, you know. So, under Orford's direction, the Admiralty cast about for a new ship, one that was large enough for Dampier's requirements. What they found was a nine-year-old, 292-ton, 26-gun, fifth-rate ship of the line. She was a frigate, and a relatively small one, but not a bad ship all in all. Her name was HMS Roebuck. At present, the Roebuck was at anchor at the Downs, under Admiral Cloudsey. In October 1698, William Dampier paid his new ship his first visit. And he decided that the ship would do fine, but this also gave him his first chance to meet the crew. The lieutenant was George Fisher, who would serve as second-in-command on their voyage. Fisher, by the by, had been captain until William Dampier was named captain over him. Under George Fisher would be the ship's master, Jacob Hughes. And Dampier was mostly satisfied with what he saw, but he decided he needed some familiar faces on board. He picked three men who had served on the Spanish expedition alongside Dampier himself. You don't really need to know their names. None of them are going to actually make it to the voyage. But it's worth noting that one of them was a Spaniard and a Catholic. This was something that put Lieutenant Fisher's back up. Lieutenant Fisher was, well, Diana and Michael Preston, in A Pirate of Exquisite Mind, multiple times they refer to him as a chauvinist. And from what I can tell, the adjective fits. You know, to a guy like him, England was without question the greatest nation on earth, and the English people the greatest people on earth. Everyone else was inferior, but exactly how inferior depended on several factors, one of those a big one, was religion. Papists were disgusting to a man like George Fisher. A few days later, Fisher reported to the Admiralty Board that the Spanish Catholic and one of the other men Dampier had brought on board 
were overheard to boast that, quote, when they came to sea, they would heave the master overboard and run away with the king's ship. End quote. Now, George Fisher said he had heard this secondhand from one of his loyal men, and George Fisher was a respected English navyman. Nobody had reason to question him, but, you know, I question him. I suspect that George Fisher was just lying. For a guy with his particular worldview, I don't doubt that he would have done almost anything to get rid of this Spanish papist. But he also had reason to suspect Dampier's other choices, namely, that Dampier himself had chosen them. See, a few years earlier, Fisher had served alongside a man named Carol Roffey, and Carol Roffey had previously served on board the Signet under Charles Swan. Roffey had watched with bitterness in his heart when Dampier and the rest of the mutinous pirates left him on Mindanao. To a man like Roffey, and honestly, to a man like George Fisher, there was never any question that William Dampier was, and always would be, a villainous pirate. And now here he was, given command of a ship in the King's Royal Navy. It was disgusting. It spat upon everything that George Fisher loved and believed in. And then Dampier has the gall to choose three men who served on the Spanish expedition. You know, the voyage that was taken over by Henry Every. Of course, you know, those three men elected not to join the mutiny alongside Henry Every, but to Fisher, they were guilty just by association. What really seems to have turned Fisher's mind was the biggest news in London at the time. William Kidd was on trial at that very moment. And what was William Kidd on trial for, exactly? Well, let me see. He was on trial for having taken a ton of money from Lord Orford and taking command of a ship which subsequently turned pirate. Whenever Fisher talked about William Dampier, he always called him an old rogue. And, you know, to be fair to George Fisher, if I were in his shoes, I might feel kind of the same way. Dampier definitely was an old rogue. You know, I've read his book, and I don't believe his guileless Englishman for a second. Considering what William Dampier described as the temptations our seamen have had of late to turn pirate, I wouldn't put it past him to turn pirate here on board the Roebuck. But that was not William Dampier's plan, not at all. His plan was to sail for South America and then to round Cape Horn. He would then make the long, dangerous voyage across the Pacific Ocean and make landfall on the eastern coast of Terra Australis. That's more or less exactly what Captain Cook would do in about 70 years' time, but Dampier would never get the chance. He, if he had been able to leave England right then, he might have been able to make the wind cycle to round Cape Horn and cross the Pacific, but preparations were taking longer than he'd hoped. By November, when preparations finally wrapped up, he'd lost his window. 
Still, he got his final orders from the Admiralty. The Roebuck was to sail south, to round the Cape of Good Hope, the Cape of Africa, to sail east across the Indian Ocean, through the Spice Islands, and finally to make landfall on the western coast of Australia. HMS Roebuck, Captain William Dampier, and Lieutenant George Fisher finally set sail on 14 January, 1699. This was the Royal Navy's very first voyage specifically for scientific exploration, and they had quite a few men on board to that end. You know, they put William Dampier in charge, that's a big one, but they also had men on board who were there specifically to care for the flora and fauna that Dampier was ordered to bring back with him. Dampier had a secretary to look after all his papers, maybe do some transcription work, who was also, quote, skilled in drawing, so he could, you know, capture images of the things they saw they couldn't bring back. It's also worth noting here that they were specifically requested to bring back some people, but only if, quote, they were willing. The Roebuck set out for Madeira, and then on southward. Immediately, though, the environment on board proved to be tense. Dampier and Fisher argued constantly. You know, Dampier was the captain, but Fisher saw him as kind of a figurehead. You know, he was this hot new author that the Royal Navy wanted to get a little bit of street cred by putting in charge of a mission. Fisher saw himself, though, as the, you know, the real captain of the voyage. At one point, very early on, Fisher, quote, upon a very frivolous occasion, gave the captain very reproachful words and bade him kiss his arse and said he did not care a turd for him. End quote. It was not an easygoing voyage. The ship made for the Canaries, and then Cape Verde, and then continued on south. And around this time, Dampier extended an olive branch to Lieutenant Fisher. He invited him to share a bowl of punch with himself, the purser, the doctor, and the clerk. You know, they were all urbane, educated, man-about-town types. Should have been a pleasant evening, but it absolutely was not. According to Lieutenant Fisher, and this all comes from him, so keep that in mind, but the conversation turned to, quote, a pirate's life, which my captain called privateer, and he said that their life was the best of lives. Fisher replied that life on board a king's ship was far superior, as, quote, there every man could have justice. Fisher tells us that the doctor and the clerk, men who Fisher calls Scotch dogs, remember, England was the greatest nation on earth, he says that they were dismissive of his statement. He then calls the purser a great rogue. But then Fisher pushed on. He reminded Captain Dampier that the pirates were forced to hide out in despicable, uncivilized parts of the world. They were not welcome in a great city like London, or even a backwater like Boston. He then says that Dampier told him, if they happened upon, say, Henry Every and his men, quote, he would not hurt a hair on their heads. Fisher reminded Captain Dampier that it was his duty, as a captain in the Royal Navy, 
that if they did happen upon any pirates, especially Henry Every, that he should capture or kill them. And Fisher made it clear that if they did spot some pirates, and Dampier shirked his duty, Fisher would take command and treat Dampier just like the pirate that he surely was. Dampier had invited Lieutenant Fisher to share a bowl of punch, and Fisher had ended the evening by threatening to kill him. It was about this time that Dampier began to look around and realize that he was on board a ship far away from any coast, especially any friendly coast, filled with men that had served together for months and months. They all knew each other well, and that included Lieutenant Fisher. He himself was just a newcomer. Dampier began to realize that he had really not one single ally on board. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Rumors began to filter back to Dampier that the crew planned to kill him in his sleep and to give command over to George Fisher. It appeared they were plotting a mutiny against him. So Dampier decided to make for a port where the men could disembark and enjoy a bit of shore leave. He wanted a city that would offer them good food, copious drinks, and beautiful women, the kind of place that might relieve some of the tension that was growing on board the Roebuck. He decided to make for Brazil, specifically the port of Bahia, the largest city in Brazil at the time. Now, this would have been absolutely in line with a voyage for the Cape of Africa, 
You know, you'd head east after that and make pretty good time. And it was, honestly, the only port with the amenities that Dampier was looking for between where they were and the Cape of Good Hope. It, it's a good plan. You know, that certainly would relieve some of the tension on board, and it was really his only option. But it appears that, quite likely spurred on by rumors right out of Lieutenant Fisher's mouth, the men began to believe that they were making for Brazil to eventually round Cape Horn and then make the long, dangerous voyage across the Pacific. That's something that the men really did not want to do. It's entirely possible that the reason those pre-voyage preparations took so long was because the men were waiting out the wind patterns that would allow Dampier to make for Cape Horn and the Pacific. The grumbling against Captain Dampier grew louder. Then... On 10 March 1699, HMS Roebuck crossed the equator. As was tradition for virtually every ship on the ocean when you cross the equator, the men enjoyed a little celebration. The cooper cracked open a cask of beer, and the men enjoyed a bit of Saturnalia. The musicians broke out the drums and fiddles, the sailors put on costumes and play-acted a few more or less traditional skits. Some of these skits involved the beautiful women that they were sure to meet at the next port that would absolutely be free with their charms. The men liked these skits, but they also involved a bit of good-natured ribbing of the officers. You know, the men would put on an officer's coat and do an impression of the bosun, that kind of thing. But the outsider on board, Dampier, an old pirate, took some particularly hard knocks. Nothing mutinous, but not at all flattering. However, the men were complaining that the beer they had was going bad. It just wasn't any good. They asked if they could open up another barrel that might be a little bit better. After all, it is a party. Now, had he followed the rules, followed the chain of command... Lieutenant Fisher should have asked Captain Dampier for permission to open up that second cask of beer. But that's not what he did. Instead, Fisher just ordered the cooper to crack another barrel. As he saw himself as the rightful captain, it shouldn't be a big deal, right? What's not clear here is whether or not William Dampier actually understood that the first cask of beer wasn't any good. Had Fisher asked permission as he was supposed to do, then he would have known exactly what was going on, but he didn't. All Dampier saw was the lieutenant giving orders to open up another keg of beer. The kind of thing that, you know, makes you a popular guy on board, makes you look to the crew like a pretty reasonable guy. If you were, I don't know, planning to instigate a mutiny, getting the crew good and drunk might just be a good start. Dampier saw this as a real problem, so he ran to his cabin and grabbed his cane. Then he marched back on deck and ordered the cooper, who had opened those kegs of beer, to present himself. When the cooper did as ordered, Dampier broke his head for failing to ask permission to open another cask of beer. That's the word they use in later testimony, he broke his head. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but that's never good. 
Then Dampier marched over to Lieutenant George Fisher, who had given the order. He demanded to know why Fisher ordered a second cask of beer opened, but before Fisher could even answer his question, Dampier, quote, fell to caning him. The lieutenant, who was bleeding by this point, fled from Dampier and his cane. He ran for the forecastle, but Dampier chased after him, and he hit him again, and then again. But he relented, and finally ordered Fisher confined to his cabin. According to the lieutenant, Dampier beat him there again, even more viciously. When Dampier finally put his cane down and got around to questioning Lieutenant Fisher, Fisher demanded that he be allowed to leave his cabin to visit the head. You know, he needed to use the facilities. Dampier, though, I'm sure was certain that Fisher would use this opportunity to instigate his mutiny, and he refused to allow him to leave his cabin for any reason. Fisher was going to be left to sit and stew in a cabin filled with his own filth for God knows how long. This was unwelcome news, so he exploded at Dampier. He called him, quote, an old pirating dog, and claimed that Dampier only, quote, got a ship to cheat his king and his nation. Dampier, I'm sure quite reasonably, remember, he's just a mild-mannered English gentleman, but he asked Fisher to moderate his scurrilous language. And Fisher replied, quote, The captain might kiss my arse. So Dampier left him there to stew in his filth. Then he addressed the crew, who was still assembled on deck, and he asked them point-blank if there had been any plot to mutiny against him. The crew denied it unanimously. Dampier took no reprisals out on any of them. However, he ordered that his hammock be moved from his cabin up to the quarter-deck, the highest point on ship. At least, that wasn't actively in the rigging. On the quarter-deck, Dampier would be in full view of anybody who was above board. It would be impossible for any single mutineer or even a small group of conspirators to approach him unnoticed. Nonetheless, he took no few precautions, including sleeping with a loaded pistol in his hand. About a week later, Dampier spied Brazil on the horizon. The ship was on course for Bahia, which they made in a couple of days. Dampier wrote the Portuguese governor there, asking for permission to dock, and also informed him about what had happened with his lieutenant. The Portuguese governor agreed to keep Lieutenant Fisher in a jail cell for a while. When he was finally allowed to leave his cabin, Lieutenant George Fisher was marched out in irons and had four armed guards surrounding him, taking him to that Brazilian jail cell. Now, Fisher would spend the next several weeks in jail, and all the while, HMS Roebuck stayed in port. And the men did indeed enjoy their time in Bahia. They were carousing at the behest of their captain, drinking, enjoying the company of women, and eating all of the food they could stomach. This one Captain Dampier, a lot of converts to his side. In the meanwhile... Fisher spent his days screaming from his jail cell out his tiny window, a near-constant stream of abuse against Captain Dampier. Now, keep in mind here, he was never allowed to leave his cell. 
until, that is, he was taken to a Portuguese man-of-war, which then shipped him off to Lisbon. From his cabin on board the Portuguese man-of-war, George Fisher penned dozens of letters. He wrote letters to the Admiralty, to every captain he knew personally, anyone that he thought might listen to what he had to say about William Dampier. These letters detail the activities of what I can really only describe as one of the most evil pirates ever to sail. Well, maybe not that bad, but pretty bad. According to George Fisher, Dampier actively engaged in piracy while on the first leg of the voyage. He said he captured ships while in the Canaries, which as far as I can tell, never happened. Nobody's testimony backs this up, and there's no, you know, reports about him having done so. Beyond that, though, Dampier, according to the former lieutenant, plotted to have Fisher killed while on board. But every time those plans were attempted to be carried out, they were foiled at the last minute, usually by a stroke of pure luck. Then, Fisher tells us that while he was staying in Bahia, Dampier met with three of Henry Avery's men. There, the four old pirates cavorted all around town, drinking to excess. They assaulted innocent girls, they beat innocent men, and, you know, probably, in their off time, did a bit of devil worship. How... George Fisher would have managed to actually learn of any of these activities while he was confined to a jail cell, he neglects to mention. Now, none of this happened. Maybe Dampier did plot to have him killed, but I doubt it. Still, though, all of it made William Dampier look really bad. And Fisher, remember, a respected Navy man, while well, he was being sent back to London where he would be able to testify and complain, and bribe all around the city. He was going to do everything in his power to turn England against William Dampier. Meanwhile, Dampier left Bahia. He headed east toward Australia. He would be unable to defend himself or even realize that he needed defending for several months to come. Next time, though, the hammer is going to fall. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Age of Napoleon, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can always check them out at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
Tonight. 